0: Many Happy Miles, a podcast that celebrates all type of forward movement, whether it's an epic hike, a century ride, or your first brisk walk after a setback, we're here to say yay to it all and bring on guests to inspire you to move with joy. I'm Dimity McDowell, co-founder of Another Mother Runner. And I'm Sarah Westner Flynn, and this week I am
1: saying yay to fast running. Not my own, but I had a weekend of celebrating uh, my friend, training partner Matt qualified for the Boston Marathon yesterday. So that was really exciting. Oh, awesome. He, Where, what race did um, he it run? It was the One City Marathon in Newport News, Virginia. And he picked okay. it because it had a high rate of Boston qualifying. He's been talking about this for many years and he's chipping away his very first marathon, I think he ran like 330, and then yesterday he ran 307. So he qualified oh. for like, he, he's going to be 40. He's on the younger side, so he qualified for the next year. So I'll have a training partner for next year for 2024, which is exciting. Sweet. I mean, he's, he's faster than me by a lot, but I was like, I could try to get a little bit closer to him, and we can do some miles together. And then for anybody who's a big track fan, like me, the Friday night, there was a, or was it Saturday night? I can't Remember, the sound uh, running did a 10K, and Alicia Monson is like the newest it girl in distance running. She broke the American record, and so that was really exciting. And then this week, I'm going to, to national, so I'll have another track meet to go to this week. So lots of fast running, which I hope will inspire me to enter a race and to run fast soon, but...
0: Do you have any races on your uh, calendar? Uh, yes,
1: I do have the Cherry Blossom 10-Miler, which is coming up okay. in a few weeks. And um, that one I do every year. And so I progressively gotten slower. I, like The first time I did it, I like hit it out of the park. I was in like peak shake. And then ever since then, I've gotten a little slower. But I just love doing it. It's like a real it's a great tradition in the DC area for runners and uh, the cherry blossoms are usually out, but, um, they peaked early this year because of that weird warm snap that we had or yeah, was it a warm snap. is a cold snap. I don't know if it's a warm snap, but, um, spell warm spell, I guess. Uh, so now that and then it's really windy. So they're saying that the blossoms might blow away, but it's still a really fun race and I don't care how I do this year. I just like to do it. So, yeah. So what are you saying? You just had a little, Fun trip,
0: Uh, yeah! I went up to Steamboat, Colorado, um, where uh, saw my parents, and I went with my daughter. Went with Amelia. She had a spring—I wouldn't even call it spring break. She just has a a semester break. Maybe Uh, she gets out of school at the end of April, (laughs) her college semester. She doesn't even go to May. So anyway, so that's what she's doing. But I am saying yay to um, Sarah. I'm going to put it out there. I'm going to do. The Mount Lemon Bike Climb, um, which is in Tucson.
1: I know where Um, it is. I know of it very well. I've never done it, but... You've never done it. Well,
0: I'm going to go do it, not very trained at all. So I'm just going to throw that out there that I'm giving myself the right to maybe turn around if we don't do it. My my parents live in Phoenix, so Mm -hmm. Grant and I are going to go down to Tucson first and then go to Phoenix for spring break. And I've always wanted to... I've done a part of it um, when I was at a triathlon camp many, many years ago, And I'm like, you know what? Like, we did the Iron Horse. It's basically the Iron Horse, which is what we did last year. I was very well trained for Mm -hmm. that. This one, because of my ankle, I haven't – I mean, I have maybe like four weeks of training and I'm maybe not even be outside on the bike until we get to Arizona, but – I'm just going to trust that I can do it if I take my time and spin my gears and spin my legs and we'll see how it goes. And explain how how far, how high. Well, you know, I need to I need I need to look into it actually. So don't. We have more time to talk about it, but I know it's. I think it's. I think it's about six or seven thousand feet Mm -hmm. of climbing again. Maybe maybe it's closer to five. I don't know, but it's definitely it's it's definitely a, a big. It's a climb, Mm -hmm. and it's called Mount Lemon for for a reason. Right.
1: (laughs) My sister did it. She did a training camp there um, a few years ago, and she did it. And I remember thinking, like, well, that's such a big deal. And then there are these two triathletes, Sam Long and Lionel Sanders, and they, over the pandemic, had, like, this big rivalry where one would race it. And then the other one would, and they just kept getting, trying to get the Strava KOM, the king of the mountain. Oh, sure, sure. Because nothing else was happening in the triathlon world. That became like a big deal. And it was fun to watch, like to see how fast they could do it. Climbing on, it's hard. You're good at it. I know that you've done some climbing races before, but it's, it's tough
0: to climb. It helps to have easier gears, but yes, I, I won't be going for a QOM. And again, I know I know Grant's going to make it uh, to the top because he's been training really well. And I, again, I'm, if I fail, um, I, I'm not going to fail. I'm going to do the best. Yeah, I can of course. Day, but I'm going to go you give it a go. go, go give it a try. Yeah,
1: exactly. that's exciting. Exactly. So, so, are they getting snow up there that that you know of? Because I know Flagstaff got hit hard, but maybe that's higher.
0: Yeah, that's okay. I think Flagstaff, I, uh, Tucson is definitely in s- more southern. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's past Phoenix, so I think it should be fine. Mm-hmm. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, wow. So stay tuned on that. Very one. Very exciting goal. I'm excited for this. I love new goals. Thanks, thanks. Well, it's yeah, it's just gonna team me up. It's it's the end of March, and then we'll and then we'll talk about hiking after. Right. That. So, <laughs> but for right now, oh my gosh, I can't wait to have you guys listen to this episode. Super fun. We are bringing on the power couple Kelly and Juliet Starrett, who are the co-authors of Built to Move, the 10 Essential Habits to Help You Move Freely and Live Fully. The book, which has been called A Detailed Accessible Roadmap to Help You Move Through Life Feeling Better, Stronger, and More Confident Than You Ever Imagined, is hitting the shelves on April 4th, and so we're excited to give you a sneak preview of it today. And before we bring on our
1: guests, we'll introduce them since they both have super impressive bios. We'll start with Kelly, who's the co-author of the New York Times bestselling, Becoming a Supple Leopard, Ready to Run, and the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Deskbound. He's a physical therapist, we should say, and he's also the co-founder of the Ready State as well as San Francisco CrossFit.
0: And joining Kelly is his wife, Juliet Starrett, an entrepreneur, attorney, author, and podcaster. With Kelly, she also co-founded the Ready State and San Francisco CrossFit. She is the co-author as well of Deskbound, and she was a professional whitewater paddler winning three world championships and five national titles.
1: Okay, so welcome, Kelly and Juliet. Thank you guys so much for joining us. We're, we're
2: excited to chat you up.
1: Yes, we are <laughs> excited for you to, ha- to have you. And before we dive into this amazing insight in your latest book, in a bit, we're going to hear a little bit about your athletic background. So, Julia, let's start with you. How did you get into whitewater paddling, and what did you do
2: before that? Uh, sure, I'll start. I'll go way back to childhood. <laughs> I was kind of like a multi-sport athlete in middle school, but I will say that I, I was not skilled. I was often not a starter and I was just sort of a mediocre athlete. And then in high school- Is that I because you had-
3: Wait, I have to stop. Is that because you didn't know how to suffer yet? You didn't, didn't discover your yet. penchant yeah, for so suffering? Th-
2: this is Kelly's, Kelly's <laughs> telling the punchline of my story beforehand, but what I, I'll tell it to you. The punchline of the story is my athletic gift is the ability to suffer. You have no idea. Um, and beyond that, I don't- it, it's, I'm not that great of an athlete, I'll say. But I found the sport of rowing in high school- Which is. I'm a former uh,
0: rower, so I hear hear you on the suffering.
2: Suffering. And I realized I I had found my spot where I could, you know, be very successful in a total suffer sport. And I fell in love with the sport and I rode all through high school and then went on to be a D1 rower at Cal. And this was back in the dawn of time, by the way, when you could still be five foot six and be a rower at Cal, by the way. So, (laughs) so I mean, you know, just caveat, I went on to be a rower at Cal. And then while I was in college there, I was actually seeking a summer job where I could be outside and be tan. So just a little insight into my 18 year old, my 18 year old mind was what job can I do where I can work outside and be tan? and that's where i landed in the sierras of california working as a river rafting guide which is something i did all through college it was my college summer job and so after college i was invited to try out for this thing called the us women's extreme whitewater team i didn't even know what it was but it turns out that there is a sport of extreme rafting and it's a complete and utter fringe sport in the united states most people have never heard of it but you know it's a full thing in other countries where athletes are sponsored and it's taken very seriously as like a serious sport. But anyway, here it wasn't a thing, but I thought, well, you know, I have this sort of background as a rower and I know how to run rivers. I've been a river guide for five years. I'm going to show up for this tryout. And I show up for a tryout in on the Kern River in California. And there's like 60 women there trying out for a single spot because the team was only missing a single
3: spot. And let me jump in and say that these this team of women are extraordinary women, breakers of glass ceilings, Expedition leaders, Hall of Fame paddlers, the stunt double from Meryl Streep. Like these are the most extraordinary, some of the most extraordinary whitewater paddlers, national champions, and they're looking for their missing person.
2: They're looking for their missing person. And so I do this whole weekend tryout again, no expectation. I'm just like, this seems cool. I'm 24 years old. And the next thing I know, I make the team. And within a month, I'm paddling at my first national championships. Again, having no idea what's going on, we win. Wait, so you're in
0: in a group boat, though. Yeah, there's six of us in the boat. There's six of us in the boat.
2: The the sport is actually advanced now. There's only four people in the boat now on the sport. But back then, there were six people in the boat. and. We won – this is all just so unexpected for me. We win a national championship, and then I'm told, okay, well, in three months' time, you're going to be competing in the world championships on the Zambezi River in Africa. So you need wow. to prep yourself up for that. So that was really my I, – I was a bit of an accidental professional whitewater
3: paddler. You have, you have to understand that what Juliet just won is a ticket – To the scariest, gnarliest race there is in the world.
2: So my naivete turned out to be really beneficial because I just was like along for the ride. And I will say, you know, one of the things that was so spectacular about my five-year whitewater professional career was just the opportunities I got to travel around the world. And in fact, that wasn't lost on me at the time. I mean, I was really excited about taking adventures and going to see new parts of the world. And so, so I really was able to use the sport of extreme whitewater paddling as a way to just go see the world on someone else's dime, which was really cool. So,
3: and let let me tell you what that affords our daughter. So you get your mitochondria from your mother. So both our daughters, it's all maternal DNA. (laughs) Both our daughters can suffer. I mean, they literally have this huge, exquisite metabolic machinery. Thankfully, they got their mothers. But also, what you don't know about this is that Juliet is a gamer. Big pressure, big moment. And she just pulls it out. Like she becomes, she's like coalescing and you're like, oh, is that, what is that? Is that, oh, diamond. (laughs) Our daughters have become those women too. It's bananas. uh,
2: I'll I'll add one other sort of chapter of this athletic background story, which does relate back to the suffering. Kelly and I obviously found CrossFit early on and we owned a CrossFit for many years, but I was competing in the CrossFit games in the early years, like from like 2009 to 2011, 12 But what's really noteworthy about that is that was in this little era of CrossFit competition where you could compete without being a professional at the sport. You know, you could like have a job and be raising kids and doing other stuff and compete at it. And it was also, importantly, a time where if you could out-suffer the competition, you could still be competitive in CrossFit. And since that time, it is so high skill And such Mm -hmm. a professional sport, you know, so it just, the sport, the sport of CrossFit left me behind and I got old and, you know, there were a variety of reasons, but I did, you know, try my luck at CrossFit and was lucky to be able to do a little bit of CrossFit competition when it was still not professional and still my, my ability to suffer helped me.
0: All right. All right. Well, Kelly, share some of your (laughs) athletic background.
3: I'm a dilettante. I, I like to hang out with my friends. I see the social benefits of exercise and competition. Don't even
2: listen to him, you guys. Don't uh, even listen to that. I think, I think the real thing is
3: that I grew up in Europe as a child in a little Bavarian hamlet. My mother was a professor, a single mother, and she got a job teaching in Europe and whisked me out of the United States. And I, I came back when I was a freshman in high school but what was really important about that or selling, is that I was exposed to mountain biking and ski racing and kayaking and hiking and all the other sports. And we played soccer and the kid who was the best, the, the girl, the boy who was the best at every sport was the person who had our most respect. And we would do two or three sports in a single day. And, you know, the only rules I had was I had a bike and I had to be home when it was dark or home at the like the sixth church bell. Like, cause you know, this little, you know, know, literally I'd be hearing the bell and be like, Oh my, I'm (laughs) going to die. Like mom's going to kill me. And we would ride our bikes to Austria for chocolate. And we were just, we we were feral kids in the mountains. And that was really set me up to make decisions about where I went to school and the things that I got to do. And I fell in love with paddling and, uh, uh, at an early age, I started kayaking when I was 12, whitewater kayaking, and then ended up paddling in college on the national team. In whitewater slalom, so slightly different sport than Juliet's sport, where yeah. you see it in the Olympics. Well, yeah, I cut
2: you sport. off; you just skipped over an entire part of your life, which was high school.
3: Well, you know, I I got really into <laughs> football, and then realized I was small and slow. Look at that! Right. So, winning comes once again. I did not win Juliet's genetics for suffering. So, uh, you know, in short, I met Juliet because we were all river guides in the summer. And so what, in between oh, cool. college, we were river guides and taught kayaking. And then we all started racing. And then when this is this emergent phenomenon of the extreme racing in the 90s, I, I think people forget sometimes um, there was that great documentary about the women who sailed in around the, the race, around uh, the world race, right? Yeah. In 92. That's really amazing. Mm-hmm. That was 1992. So, you know, they were like, oh, women will die. And this, like-
2: yeah, like that. I don't know if you guys have, I, I forget the yeah. name of that documentary, but it was insane because they were, they couldn't get any sponsors. It was 1982. Remember yeah. this? Because yeah. the the sponsors were yeah. worried they were going to die and it was going to look bad for the brand. And I was like, wow, that's so crazy to me. Like I was an adult already by that point. Or yeah. I was a young adult. Right. It, wasn't it wasn't that long, no. long ago. Anyway, mm-hmm. go ahead.
3: So there's this phenomenon yeah. starting to happen of extreme sports and the Vale Mountain Games and... We all, we started realizing that we could risk our lives and maybe make two hundred dollars on the weekend if, if we won the race. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're a you know twenty year old kid, I mean you're like sign that's, that's signing pop up two hundred dollars
1: yeah.
3: is so much Taco Bell. Let me just say it's so much Taco Bell. So <laughs> we I fell into this really interesting happening in Colorado at the time where there was so much innovation and and progression of a sport. So I fell into whitewater kayaking at the real, the right moment. There were some people who had been holding that space. Anyway, needless to say, this is all I obsess about. I basically majored in kayaking, minored in whatever I minored in at college. And
0: did you go to Fort Lewis?
3: Uh this was in at Boulder. Oh,
0: in Boulder. Okay. All right. And
3: my best friend and I start racing on the national team in two man canoe. And then we basically talked all our friends into trying out for this other race. So we pulled our national team slalom super friends. And we're like, I think we can win a free trip to Chile. And they were like, We're in. So <laughs> that is how I basically met Juliet and the, the end of my wow. the end of my professional aspirations.
1: Wow. That's such a cool story. So you guys met at an event? We met at the World
3: Whitewater Championships in Chile. So imagine just, I don't know how many countries are there, a lot. And it's big class five. And what's interesting, I think, and of note to this conversation is I had a chance to see Juliet. And I'm pretty good at spotting patterns. And as I'm chatting Juliet up, because she's very cute, she has jack lats, and she's a very accomplished paddler, and she's on this team of superstars. So, I mean, by proxy, she is a superstar. And I'm t- chatting her up, and I'm like, what do you do? She's like, I'm an internet professional in San Francisco. And I was like, I don't even know what that means, but I sleep in my truck. I didn't really either. I sleep in my truck with my dog, and I'm a kayak rep. I live in Durango. And then I'm like, "What are you, what's your plan? She's like, I'm going to law school, and I've already applied. And I was like- I'm moving to San Francisco, so that is how <laughs> we ultimately met. As I tricked Juliet into, uh, you know, a lot inviting me to San Francisco, inviting me to San Francisco, and then what's important is that I met Juliet in this under these circumstances where immense pressure, very scary, lots of competition, and I really got to see who she was at theoretically our worst our most stressed selves
2: i also i don't mean to take over as host Mm -hmm. of this but i feel like you're missing a key thing which (laughs) is about your whole like what ended your slalom career because it was so influential in the rest of your life oh that's a good point you should tell them that story really i
3: um i basically paddled myself and if if you're a runner you can relate to this in Mm the 90s Mm -hmm. particularly our model was more volume more better if we can get more volume in, if we can outrun and outwork everyone else, then we can we can, can suffer, suffer more. more. And yeah. that's just mm-hmm. academic. Like I'll just put in more work. The problem is that created creates this phenomenon called we call plausible deniability. So if you get injured, or you're not able to adapt to the the training stresses, or you overdo it, or under recover, or under fuel, or your mechanics start to deviate and you have a problem you can't race. You can always point to your body of work and say, well, it's not my fault because look how hard I worked, right? And I just, next time I'll be better. Mm -hmm. Doing the work. So that was what our model was. And everything was done not on mechanics or nutrition or strength and conditioning or support or recovery. It was all predicated on what was fastest. Can you go faster? Do faster, faster. I mean, our sophistication was let's not take a hard stroke for five minutes. Right. Like that was how we warmed up. <laughs> so in short, I basically totally,
2: I totally end, up. I ended up
3: with it. Right. Well,
2: and I think he, I think he also mentioned, you know, him spending $200 on Taco Bell. So that probably gives you like a loose no, idea. No, no, not course.
3: that time. Not that time. That was in college. Now I'm evolved. Now I'm, I'm eating Reading, like, metrics. Yeah. Yeah. for sure. Power bar, power bar was one of our early sponsors. Shout out yeah. to power bar because every time we ended up on a, a newspaper or something with our picture and our power bar, they would send us 50 bucks. And 50 bucks was so much money, you know? So, you know, we didn't have social media pressures or this kind of thing. It was just, it was this really amateur Mm -hmm. experience, but I ended up creating a neck injury for myself where I had a really gnarly nerve root and I couldn't turn my head and my hands started to get weak. And that really ended my professional career and started me truly on the path that we're on, where I started asking really difficult questions of the system did you know this was going to happen? Yes, we. it's likely to happen. Well, how come every woman on this national team has had shoulder surgery? Should my daughter just have shoulder surgery now if she wants to be on the national team? Like we're not able to prevent any of these problems. <laughs> Is there something that we can influence? And that really ultimately, because I, I went down the rabbit hole for everyone. It's easy from this side now to be like, oh my gosh, I made a hundred mistakes or there were a hundred things I could have improved. But at the time I really went down that rabbit hole of, make it so I can go back to what I want to do, which is most of us. The pain is so bad that you can't do your job. That's an injury. You can't occupy your role in the team. That's an injury. You can't occupy your role in recreation. That's an injury. Pain is one thing. We all suffer. I mean, Julia, it's legendary at suffering and is gritty, but that's not the same thing as having your livelihood taken away, having your social... Yeah, You know, group taken away, having your whole psycho-emotional self sort of on the line. And, you know, ultimately, I was like, give me the prednisone, give me the cortisone, give me the shot, give me the acupuncture, just make this go away. Meanwhile, none of those solutions were things that would make my body more robust and more durable. So anyway, that's, yeah, I think that's just, how we got here. I, I thought Thank you
2: me. couldn't leave that out because I think that that part of his own professional athletic career was so influential in what we do today and what we've been doing. Yeah. And
3: and, and even that the, the yeah. we come in and we get to yeah. work with young athletes and we're like, we are going to work really hard to help you not step on this rake.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We'll be right back after this break.
1: Well, let's speed us up to present day. We got this book. It's coming out in a few weeks, Built to Move. And so I actually have to tell you, I think it's a game changer. My husband grabbed it off my nightstand. The minute I got it, he's like, oh, I've heard about this book. I want to read it. So he's been reading it as well. So, you know, it applies to, I think you're going to have a mass appeal because my husband and I have our different interests in, in athletics. And so,
3: um, yeah. So what ways?
1: Well, I'm a runner and a swimmer and a biker triathlete and he's more, he played lacrosse. So, you know, he, he, Mm. he likes to run now, let's say that, but I'm more of like into the endurance world and he just like runs to stay healthy. So, but we both want to be healthy for a long time. So that's what your book is all about. And so tell us a little bit about the impetus to write Built to Move.
2: I'll take a swing at that. So, you guys may have heard of our other one of our other books becoming a supple leopard which sort of made a splash when it came out in 2013 and 10, then again it? in 20 we did a second edition in 2015. But you know, that that book is a 500-page textbook on um range of motion and motor control and it's definitely complicated and you know, for many people, more of like a reference book and for many sure. people, not even slightly accessible. You know, we we've, we have so many friends who are like, I love becoming a supple leopard, but you know, I'm not, I'm not going to give it to my wife or husband or mom or dad because, you know, again, they fall into that category of people who want to be healthy, but they're not going to read a 500 page, extremely technical textbook about how the body works, right? So, So I think part of it was just that we felt like there was this huge hole in supple leopard and we couldn't cast a wide enough net with some of the concepts. And then I think add to that, that while we have gotten our chops working in the high performance world with professional athletes and military folks and coaches of all stripes, you know, that's where we've sort of learned so many lessons. But at the same time, we're two parents running a couple of businesses, living in a suburban neighborhood friends with a lot of people who have literally nothing to do with the health and fitness business. And don't identify it as Don't identify it as athletes. However, to a T, they all care about being healthy. Sure. And how they approach that means very different things to them. But what we started to see is that in our own industry, the health and fitness business, we've totally confused everybody. We're sort of like the go-to people in our community. People are like, hey, I heard about intermittent fasting. What do you guys think? Or, hey, I heard about this new kind of training. And, you know, now I heard the new thing is to do high intensity workouts. And now I heard the new thing is to do a lot of zone two work. And, you know, what we see is that, you know, this sort of cohort of people who very wide range in age, but are interested in being healthy, really were like very confused about where to start and didn't have a guidebook about the basics. And so I think we sort of were able to say, okay, we felt like there was a huge hole in Supple Leopard. We learned all these lessons from working with high performance people and teams. And how can we cast a way wider net and write a book that is like super accessible to both people who would describe themselves as an athlete and people like Sarah, I don't know if your husband would describe himself as an athlete or not, but he'd be one of those people that I would say might be kind of on the fence. Like he's like exactly like you said, like he's interested in being healthy he mm-hmm. does move his body, but, you know, he maybe wouldn't describe himself as an athlete. I'm not sure. He doesn't compete. He's not competing. Yeah. Exactly. So mm-hmm. so I think we really just felt like we had so many lessons that we've learned and we wanted to be able to share them with people in like a relatable, accessible way. I think the other thing, too, that it, we, we also realize is being busy working parents is that we don't have a lot of spare time. And so, you know, like one of the things you guys may relate to is like a busy working mom is like the A number one thing that bugs me about like fitness influencers is the idea that I should spend like that. I have the time and capability to spend my morning journaling, meditating, (laughs) uh,
3: do, you know, like whatever, you know, I'm
2: I'm like making my kid a lunch and, you know, driving them through the drop off. Like I'm doing all this really standard issue stuff that is not at all about like
0: my own optimization. And so our the daughter's
3: course- boyfriend has started eating our leftovers. My food prepping is gone.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, I, we we, we got to know how old are your daughters? You have two kids. Is that
2: right? Oh, yeah. We've got two daughters. One is 17 and one is 14. Okay. So, about turn 18. so, yeah, okay. I think, you know, we just were we're busy people. And so I think the other key thing is that we were like, what have we learned from the high performance environment that we've actually been able to realistically fit into our own busy life? that makes sense. And how can we share that with, with a much broader audience?
3: And if I Mm -hmm. just take the other swing at that, the highest calling of science is to transform humanities. That's what really pure science is great, but we have been experimenting and running this really impressive human performance laboratory. It's called sport for as long as we've been humans. And what we're trying to do now is say, Hey, look, look at all this data. Look at all these practices, look at all this, you know, these processes to create interesting, durable people who can work really hard and adapt and still have connections with their, you know, teammates and their families. And how do we take those lessons and actually now transform our communities with them? How do we take those lessons in? And that's really the highest calling of sport. So if we're if we're being honest, you know, if we don't do that with sport and sort of consummate that sort of full cycle of, of understanding and application, then sport is just entertainment. And let's just call it entertainment, you know, and that when runners or athletes break themselves, we'll just throw their bodies on the broken athlete pile. And we'll be like, wasn't that fun? And I think-
0: <laughs> It's fun for us to watch you know, anyway, yeah. yeah. <laughs> fun to
3: watch, less fun to be on the pointy end of that stick, mm-hmm. I can tell you. So when we wrote Becoming a Supple Leopard, One of the things that I think Juliet kind of just glossed over for a second or highlighted was that we had sort of two big objectives in there, objective measures. One is range of motion, and the second one is biomotor output. Can you run faster if you have access to your range of motion and control through that range of motion, how we define mobility? And what we saw was that when we gave people their range of motion back and better control they could lift more, they could run faster, they could handle higher volumes and outwork the competition more effectively. And what we've tried to do with this book is also say, well, let's create some objective measures, some benchmarks for people to understand where they are around some key practices in their life that we think make durable people. Because we're turning 50 this year, suddenly the the conversation of durability is a lot more interesting to us because we, and not longevity, longevity sort of means I'll live forever. I'll become immortal or, you know, a and still could be dot killed, but we'll live on. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't really speak to the quality of our life or our ability yeah. to take, to take the hits because, you know, just the other day, I am a kind of a, not a small person. And I tripped in our pool area, going to turn on our sauna. And I went down on the concrete so hard, And I was like, there it is. And I just now have taken myself out of competition and moving in life for, you know, a decade because I had this crazy fall on the concrete. Instead, I would bounce back up. And it was like, you know, I was like, oh, I'm okay. And the things are going to happen to us. We're going to get sick. We're going to get stressed. We're going to deal with high, high emotional, high stress environments in our lives and our families. How capable are we to withstand those events? And that actually starts backwards every day with small practices that you can build into your life to support whatever it is you want to do.
2: And and one through line between sort of the sort of like athlete and non-athlete populations that we, you know, interact with is we've seen, and I think this is the fault of the fitness business, is that people really have missed the basics and have stopped doing the basics. And um, and because there's mm-hmm. so much sexy stuff to do in the health and fitness business and cool supplements and Awesome things you can do. And look, we like some of those things. Like we are huge fans of sitting in our our cold plunge, for example. But that Mm -hmm. is not reasonable or accessible for the vast majority of people. To us, that's (laughs) to us, that's an that's a nice to have. That's not Mm -hmm. a basic. And I think that's what you know we've really lost in this business and industry and where we've left people behind is we've and, and I think partly because we're such an internet driven world that it's like the basics aren't sexy you know, on Instagram no, no, at nothing all basic about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. um, and so I think, you know, that's been hard for the fitness business. It's, it looks sexier to sit in a cold plunge than it does to like walk around the block.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, or to sit on the floor, right? Yeah, exactly. So, right. so, so yeah. So, you, so I will say, like, so you have 10 habits that you propose in Built to Move that will help you be a more durable person, right? And have a good quality of life. And you start with the very first one, which is sit and rise. So, you are proposing that we get from Standing down to sitting and then coming back up. How yeah. dare we? I gotta say, so I, that almost shut the book after trying that. Because <laughs> yeah. I'm like, so so I was a rower, like I said, I was uh, I'm six four, so I'm coming down onto the floor. Yeah, like, that, that is a long that's way a to long go. way to go. Yeah, <laughs> and then to try to get back up, and it was very very humbling. So then I tossed it out to our team, like Sarah tried it, and some of our kids. It was easier for our kids, but it's still not easy. Like that was a that's a big it was o- opening hard. chapter. Yeah. My <laughs> kids were
1: like, What are you doing? And I was like, I can do this if I concentrate. Let me activate my
3: yeah. glutes. Let me warm up. Let yeah. me have my
2: it's well, like and- I can run a marathon. I can do this. It was difficult, <laughs> I have to say. So, well, one of the reasons we want to put that test in there is the it, and and why we want to start with that and lead with that is because well, well partly you guys just explained it right there that it is fun. Yes, it is fun. Even though it's so difficult, it's like, oh, once you try it and see that it's difficult, you're like, oh my God, we got to try this and let's see who else can do this. And so so it sort of spreads around families and communities. And so so that was one of the reasons we really wanted to start with it. And then the other reason is that in order to do that, you actually don't have to express full hip range of motion. It or really be very is, strong. Or or be very strong. And okay. And we feel like it's just such an important like, wow, okay, like this is some information that I now have. And I can bring some awareness to my body in this really simple, easy to do test. And sort of what we're hoping is that it gets people to care a little bit about their range of motion, because I would say that that's been, for us, one of the biggest challenges in the work we do is that we often find that people don't care about their range of motion until they get injured Mm
3: -hmm.
2: or are struggling with some kind of chronic or nagging pain or they see their athletic performance going down. So those are often the times at which, you know, people come and find us and, and want advice and uh, on their mobility and range of motion and so forth. But we feel like this is such a simple, basic test that really gives people some information about their range of motion and some data points about, okay, like I now have some information and maybe some ideas of where to start. And what we love about the test is that there's a few practices to improve on it, but the biggest practice is just actually sitting on the floor and getting up and down off the floor, which is simple and accessible. You know, everybody's yeah. watching three hours of Netflix tonight, like the data's in, you know, regardless of whether people say they do or not, like the data's in, they're all doing it. So it's like, hey, we just say, take half an hour of one of those shows or an hour of one of those shows and just sit on the ground. So the the sort of fix yeah. for any challenges with that particular test is really easy. So that I think I'm sure Kelly could add a couple of things to that. But I mean, I think that's why we really want to start with that one because it's so impactful.
0: Yeah. Well, and I got to ask you before Kelly, you chime in. You said that you have your kids do that. Are, do your teenagers willingly sit on the floor? They do.
3: They do. Okay. All right. Or, you know, you can even do sit-legged, sit legged, sit cross legged and long sit and do all that 99, even on the couch. You just have to not use your, you know, your cute Mm -hmm. mid-century modern couch the way it was intended. You know, and if we we kind of pan back for a second, you know, the idea of the vital sign really speaks to us. And what we saw in the pandemic was a couple things. One is that if we had to use how people were, how well we had trained, if fitness is a trillion-dollar industry, almost a trillion-dollar industry, then theoretically, we have really prepared people in the last 10 years to go out and be able to f- f- self soothe and manage pain and deal with stress. And guess what? We didn't at all. And, yeah. you know, anything that you really care about, whether you're talking about ACL injury rates in women or low back pain or, you know, uh, depression, uh, you know, social isolation, all of those things have been trending in the wrong direction. And you've even seen just this recent data in the last week about. Um, obesity rates in children. It's its really astounding. And, and shame on us because it seems like we're putting a lot of money and attention towards becoming healthier and it's not working. So this idea of the, we saw that people were taking things like SAO2, their oxygen saturation, respiration rate, and they became very sophisticated around the pandemic, around expanding the idea of the vital sign. And what's nice about that is if you know you have a vital sign, is 120 over 80 good blood pressure. No. But if your blood pressure is 130 over 90, are you going to die tomorrow? Probably not. But what it says to you is, hmm, maybe I should pay attention to this. Maybe I can sort of check in. And the same thing. When we're working in high-level sports, one of the things that we know now is that you really can't outwork the other person. That ship has sailed. There's no secret squirrel program where you get to do more volume and more intensity. That's just That's not the case. Whoever can adapt to the training the most effectively is usually the person who can handle higher volumes and get more training volume and then show up at the race and be fresher. So what's nice about this idea is we call that session cost. So if you do a training session afterwards, there's a cost to the session. I can't go as hard the next day. My range of motion is off. My go signal was a little fried. I'm a little stiff. Everyone can appreciate that. Big epic race. How do you feel the next day? If I measured you on that day, you wouldn't feel very good. That has a high session cost. So we're always looking at diminishing the session cost for everyone we work with. Here we have this idea of getting up and down off the ground, which is a excellent predictor of mortality and morbidity. And the reason you'll likely end up in a nursing home is you can't get up off the ground by yourself. So we have this thing that kind of spans and multiple things, young people like ourselves on this call will uh, appreciate that <laughs> we get to basically have this nice test, which allows us to see the session cost of the choices we're making in our lives, whether that's running or cycling or, Hey, I just haven't had to keep an eye on this for a while. Cause no one said it was important and you're still really a competent mover. You're a great runner. You can still row. You can still do all the things you love, but maybe if we can put this into your lexicon of how am I doing you can keep an eye on it and lo and behold things get better.
2: I have to go back uh, Dimity 2 to your question about the teenagers because can't let that one pass so quickly about whether they sit on the floor. I mean, it's how old are your kids by the way, you guys?
0: Well, mine are so I have a uh, 16 and almost 16 and 19 yeah. and uh yeah. I, I will just say, like my 19 year old, like I just had a great weekend with her. Like I just went cross country skiing for the first time. She went for the first time, and we did a like a strength circuit together. But that's that's the first time she's ever wanted to, to do amazing anything right. ever yeah, with me, it, and, you know. But like you just have to get yeah, through yeah, that Exactly, point. and you're you're yeah. not alone in
2: that. I mean, you know, sometimes we're like, you know, our, our kids left her their own devices, want to lay in their beds and look at TikTok, and it's you know it's a constant struggle. So yes. we're, we're in we're in it with everybody else on that as well. But yes. what I wanted to say, and I think what we've worked so hard to do, and we can talk more about this in the podcast, but what we've tried to do both in our personal lives and as parents is do this thing we call constraining the environment. And and all that means is just making it really easy to make good decisions and really hard to make bad decisions because our environment is set up. Yeah, I don't have the willpower. So, not so the same is true with mm-hmm. our sort of sitting on the ground situation. We have all these comfortable mats and we've tried to create an environment both for us and for our kids where they actually will and want to sit up, do things like sit on the floor, you know, because we have like concrete floors all over our house and if we're like, Hey kids sit on the floor. They're going to be like, yeah, no, thanks. Right. Like no way we're never doing that. Right. Yeah. So, so I mean, we do have to be yeah. conscious of making sure the environment is set up to both encourage them to do that and make it comfortable for them to do that. And same for us, same for, you know, we need that. We need
0: the same constraints. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's, that's really interesting because like even last night I was watching Netflix and like laid out flat on the couch and I was thinking, gosh, I should really get down on the floor and, you know, and sit on the floor. That's what I should do, right? But I'm so comfortable here and then I've got this huge <laughs> glass table that I've got to move, right? Like there's the, the, the environment isn't inviting to it to mm-hmm. start with, right? So I love that idea of like getting yourself set up to a better situation so it maybe doesn't feel like such a chore, right?
2: Well yeah, and it- we just have these, like just to make it easier for you, we have these little mats we bought on Amazon for like twelve dollars each. Okay. Um that we just keep in the corner and we keep but they're in our kind of TV area, living room area. We just keep them in the corner and they just make a huge difference in like your comfort sitting on the floor and sitting, you know, crisscross applesauce and in those positions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we realized that our adherence to actually sitting on the floor was much better if we made it a little more comfortable for ourselves. It's just kind of like one of those little mats you sit on if you're doing yoga or, or meditating. Sure, sure. Um, and so so that's just like one simple way where you can kind of pepper your environment with a simple tool to make it more likely that you are going to, you know, m- make the choice to sit on the floor in those moments. Right.
1: Well, While you're on that note, one of the other assessments in your book is uh, how long you sit for, (laughs) which I was like, oh gosh, guilty as charged. So that's part of your chapter in creating a a movement-rich environment. And you you wrote about that in Deskbound, and then you continue the conversation in this book. And so I looked at your assessment and like, I have a very busy life. I have four kids. I work out daily. I still think i get like a B minus C plus on your grading scale, which is like seven to nine hours a day, you know, just because of this stuff, working, you know, driving. Um, writing,
2: driving, podcasting, yeah.
1: driving, exactly. Going to sports games, you know, like I'm at a swim meet all day. I'm like sitting, like I could be up and running. Um, So just kind of going on what you were just talking about, can you talk a little bit more about creating that movement-rich environment and how can we do that? How can we not sit on our butts so much all day?
3: No aspect of the human works by itself. No system works alone. It's not your skin. It's not your small intestine. It's not your spine versus your lungs. These are all very interconnected systems. One of the things that is sort of easy to lose track of when we're looking at moving. It's not sitting versus standing. It's how much movement can I get in? So thinking about the people at Harvard have defined sedentary lifestyle as sitting or being sedentary more than six hours a day. And we can define that, again, objectively, not like, well, I feel like, you know, I move around and fidget. Is that if you fall below one and a half metabolic equivalents of work. And if you remember the old stairmasters from like the eighties, you were like, Oh,
2: you know they do. What's a met? <laughs> yeah.
3: You're like, oh, I'm looking, I'm working at seven <laughs> mets. Is that good? <laughs> I don't know, but it's I'm breathing hard and that's <laughs> mets. So that was a metabolic equivalent. And then you know, an erg, believe it or not, is a still a measure, a me- measurement of work, just like a watt. Mm-hmm. But the the met fell out of favor. But when you sit down, you usually fall below one and a half mets. And that's the, the cutoff where we start to see the body start to react to not moving or being loaded or have to support itself with weight. Or And what we can kind of see is that there's a whole bunch of sedentary physiology that kicks in that is sort of not as conducive to all the things that will make us more robust, even how preferentially we burn sugar or what happens to our blood sugar when we sit. And if you've ever sat in an airplane and had cankles, for example, when you get your ankles get swollen. That's an example of what happens to your physiology when you stop using your muscles. So, for example, one of the reasons we love this idea of trying to limit inactivity time during the day is that we want to continue to use your musculature to move along your lymphatic system. Your lymphatic system is the sewage system of the body. And it's all bootstrapped into your muscles. So when you sit on an airplane, your muscles don't contract. Your lymph starts to stagnate or we start to get congestion or we get swelling kind of down at the bottom of this gravity well, which is our ankles. Moving more, engaging those muscles, pumps out those lymphatics. And it's why moving and walking is such an important part of what we're trying to do is to keep the drains clean we say, let's bring the groceries in and take the garbage out. And that, you know, your body makes between four and six liters of lymph a day, and you've got to move that around. That's yeah. the natural process. It's not just exercise, but like you turn over cells and tissues remodel and and, well, and just
2: quick interruption. I mean, that's why it's the first thing that they do after you have any kind of surgery is get I you get up moving. And moving right. There's no. There's no like stim device or anything you can put on your body that is going to take the place of just moving around to be able to get the garbage out of your body. Yeah,
3: that's. It. So w- what we can start to say then is, wow. If I am an exerciser, I need to kind of, you know, finish the cycle of what happened through the exercise and that's decongestion. I need to move along those fluids. And if I'm just an average mortal 50-year-old guy, I also want to just make sure that my tissues are healthy and healthier than if they were stagnated, which means I need to move more. Again, since no system works alone, one of the best ways we know to help people fall asleep at night is to increase their activity during the day. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to try to move more so that you actually incur enough sleep. It's called sleep stress so that you actually want to go to sleep. So here we have this thing where we're like sitting is bad or not moving your body all day is not good. And you know we're trying to get people up in bed. We're trying to move. But it also turns out that it's a great way if I'm an exerciser to continue to have a warm down, manage the the one hour run. If you're a busy person sneaking in your workout, One of the ways to get warmed up for that more effectively is not to sit in your chair for six hours and then go sprint, right? It'd be like, hey, I'm going to start to move around and prepare my body and be weight bearing. Or after the workout, I can continue to stand, move, fidget, you know, and have this movement choice. Ultimately, one day of traveling or being on a podcast or being in lots of work meetings means nothing to you. But when we start to look at that vital sign over the long haul, we can start to say, hey, here's a reason why you may be having foot problems or here's something that's contributing to your body composition or your lack of sleep. And suddenly now we can be more aware of it and because we have thumbs and we're really innate, brilliant humans, we can shape our environment to move a little more.
2: And I just want to mention something, Sarah, mm-hmm. about the swim meet thing, mm-hmm. because our kids play water polo and have done sports and, you know, we are those parents. I think sometimes, you know, I want to make sure that we loop ourselves in with like the
3: users. The yeah. Users
2: we're, users. we're not spending five hours on our Sunday meal prepping and, you know, again, journaling and meditating. Like we're at a water polo mm-hmm. tournament at some far away location all day like to the point where we don't actually even have a moment to do any kind of formal exercise in our day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those are the times where we become extra obsessed with this non-exercise activity, general movement, walking. You know, we if you look in like my old Instagram archives, you can probably find like 50 videos of Kelly and I Just walking around a track at a high school, waiting, waiting for our daughter's next water polo game or, you know, at a swim meet, literally outside the pool, walking laps, you know, I mean, and I'm talking like hundred meter laps outside the pool because, you know, the default of most parents at those things is, well, I'm just waiting for my kids game. So I'm just going to post up in my lawn chair. And spend the entire day not moving. And that's easy to do because you can socialize with other parents and you're kind of stuck in this pool deck. And so we've really just tried to kind of change our mentality about like our own participation in our kids' sports, which we love. Like we think it's the greatest thing ever. Like we're already nervous about our kids going off to college and feeling sad on the weekends yeah. about not being able to do this. But it also really can impact our own ability to get some movement in. And so, man, every time we are at a water polo tournament, swim meet, sporting event, You know, if there's not any action, if there's not actually a game happening, like we're walking around somewhere in some random neighborhood in like San Jose.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Well, and so also, Julia, just talk a little bit about even if you're not, you know, taken away out of your environment, but knowing that you guys are very human, like are you setting an alarm every 25 minutes to get up? Are you doing sun salutations in the middle of writing a presentation like kind of how do you get that in no no, never I I hate that so
2: (laughs) a few ways I mean first of all as you guys
0: know we're huge
2: standing desk fans we also know it's not for everybody Um, but if you came into our office you'd see that every desk is actually set at standing height and they're not electric desks that can go up and down like the default the default of all the desks in our office is at standing height
0: can I interrupt Um, you for one second Yeah. how do you so I have a standing desk I have a very hard time concentrating at it like is that something that comes with time yeah so interesting story
2: we actually worked with a high-level athlete who was about to write their next book and he came to us and said look guys like i get it high-level I,
3: executive
2: high-level executive he's like look i i have a standing desk i can for a lot of the tasks i do i can work no problem at a standing desk but when i'm writing my book i need to be sitting yeah. And so we actually have a lot of information in our book about actually how to make a sitting desk more, more active because again, the issue is not sitting like we are trying to be the movement people. Like the goal is to move more and even micro movements like fidgeting counts, you know, the, the real like Sauron of not moving is the idea of sitting in a chair without moving at all and not even fidgeting and moving. So there's a way to make sure that you can still be moving and active from a seated position. The other thing we do is we have, you know, we're defaulted here at our office to standing desks, which just makes it easier for us to choose to stand. But all of our standing desks also have
3: a stool. So I'm Um, perching right now. And this is an important idea is that, again, that's not sitting versus standing. It's how do I get as much movement or activity in my body? So if I stand up, suddenly Juliet and I are not in the same frame. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) So what I found is that I can perch against the stool, which means I'm not leaning against the back. I have my feet on the ground and perching up against the stool gives me above that one and a half metabolic equivalence. I can put my foot up on it. I can change my position. But now in this perching, I'm having to still use enough of my musculature in order to sort of be above that one and a half mets and I can still work. And so it's a nice little happy compromise. We love perching.
2: But for me, it's been this sort of uh, process of testing to see what works well for me standing and not standing. So I am not standing for my entire workday. I find doing things like these podcasts, I'm actually more awake and more alert and I feel better when I'm standing. So I stand throughout this and then there are also certain tasks that are super high concentration when I'm working in front of my computer I find I feel more comfortable sitting so I'm sitting on a stool let uh, me stop stop
3: I don't even know why this matters this doesn't matter but I'm just- if you stand <laughs> we did this calculation where Juliet just made a choice of being more active during her work day over the course of a year she burns an additional hundred thousand calories Wow. I outweighed Juliet by almost a hundred pounds That makes it me getting 170,000 calories of ice cream I can eat that has (laughs) nothing to do with exercise and I don't have to change any other thing. So for me, what I see is like, wow, I can be a lot more active. When I have a lot more flexibility in my desired and ability to eat cookies.
2: Well, and I just gotta add one more thing here. So I do think it's a, a process of testing what works for you yeah. and and then and then making sure in those moments, you know, if you're just you know and answering random emails and don't need to be in high concentration, like that may be a time when you should focus on standing and then choose those high concentration times to sit. But as far as just adding in more movement in the day, I think one of the things that we've gotten set on in our minds that we're hoping to change people's perception in the fitness business is that anything you do for your health has to be done in like a one-hour block because all like <laughs> fitness classes are one-hour blocks. Yes. And so I think people have this idea that in order to do something like add more walking into their day, they need another hour. So instead, they don't have another hour, right? Like Sarah, if you've got four kids, you're driving around. Like probably all you can do is get in your run in a day, and that's it. Like as far as like taking that's an heroic. hour, and that are. Already- <laughs> ready is heroic with a job and raising four kids right but what we realize and what we're hoping to get the message out there is man like there are, people do have all these little 10 minute windows and the amount of additional movement that you can add by just changing your mentality that you don't need to plan a whole walk mm-hmm. to go get your 8000 steps that you can actually really accumulate 8 to 10000 steps in these little microwaves microwaves throughout your day you know i figured out that there's this walk to the end of our block that is 1750 steps. And I do it often at right after dinner, because I I find that I'm on a like a lower movement day for me, just my normal activity, I'll often end up like around 5000 steps just kind of going about my normal day. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Oh, man, you know, it's after dinner, I want to get over the hump, I want to get to at least eight thousand steps today. And so I figured out this one. And that is a like, that's like a 16 minute walk to the end of the block. And back to my house, and I'm like 1750 steps. So, so again, I didn't have to make a plan. I didn't have to put my tennis shoes on and drive an hour to my walking class and, you know, commit the time. It's just these little movements. And, and like the other thing I like to do is walk and take a, you know, if I don't have to be on video and I can walk and put my headphones in and take a meeting, I actually, in my case, find that. I'm I can concentrate better. I'm more creative. Sure. I can be more present if I'm actually taking those kinds of meetings while I'm moving. Mm-hmm. So, again, we just want to try to sort of shift the narrative to be like everything you do for your health doesn't need to be done in this one hour block window class. Yes. Um, then that so many of these things can just be these little behaviors that you add into what you're already doing. Because the reality is, again, none of us have time to add like one more class or one more hour of anything into our days.
0: No, agreed. Agreed. Well, so you guys don't just focus on movement in this book. So I wanted to touch for a minute on the nutrition chapter in Build to Move, which is named Eat Like You're Going to Live Forever. um, Amen. Which we are, right? I mean, let's just acknowledge that we've got that going for us. (laughs) <laughs> so you cite some studies as well as some personal experience in this chapter, including an anecdote about bringing home your newborn daughter after she spent three weeks in the NICU after birth and being told by the doctors to give her vitamins, which you said tasted horrible. And um, Sarah, you and
3: she was being breastfed.
0: Oh, okay, wow. yeah. And those vitamins are, yeah, I've gotten the taste of them
1: and they do taste horrible. So I hear yeah, and you. Yeah, Kelly on that.
2: was like, Kelly was like, breast milk is supposed to be like
3: the perfect food. food.
2: Yeah. Oh, no. Like,
1: yes, right? it is. And right? then they're like, "But give her the vitamin D too, yeah. right?" Yeah. So go ahead, tell
3: the story, Kelsey. Well, just you know, I just said, "Look me in the eyes." You know, I'm a physical therapist, and tell me what's wrong with breast milk, and just keep a straight face while you do it. And they were like, <laughs> uh, uh. "And I was like, what's the problem you're trying to solve?" Well, they found out that women in San Francisco weren't going in the sun or getting enough sun, so there wasn't vitamin D in the milk. So that's the way of thinking about. Well, we can always try to be adding in these micronutrients or these macronutrients through supplements and vitamins and sort of exogenous methods. Instead, turns out whole food, as we all know, is the revolution in performance nutrition right now. So why don't we begin to establish some benchmarks around you're vegetarian, cool. You're vegan, cool. You're carnivore, cool. You keto, cool. Let's make sure you're getting enough of the what's important so that your tissues can be robust.
1: Mm-hmm. So the magic number that you provide in the book is 800 grams uh, of fruits and vegetables, correct?
3: And yes. then
1: you have part two, which is 0.7 and one gram of protein per pound of body weight per day. So how did you come up with these net magic numbers?
3: Juliet's really good at and loves this nutrition piece. And especially around sort of some of the performance things. And I think a lot of people either come to nutrition because they're trying to fuel or they sort of have a problem. But really the most people are coming to nutrition because they want to change their body weight or they want to, they need, they're looking for calorie restriction Gussied up under some, you know, eating strategy that now becomes my personal identity. I got interested in nutrition because if you're going to heal or manage the adaptation stress from training, you have to have these building blocks on board.
2: So we want to give credit where credit's due. We got the idea for the 800 grams from our dear friend, E.C. Sinkowski, who's a nutritionist, and she runs a program called the 800-gram challenge. Mm -hmm. But that is based on a study that found that objectively, people who ate 800 grams of fruits and vegetables in a day lived longer and suffered fewer chronic ailments and diseases. And so- we actually found this and found EC's idea like five years ago and we've been exposed to literally every diet, every eating, everything. Um, And we actually found in our own life, you know, we, we were able to follow it the best. We felt better. Um, and it was we, expansive. It was, it was expansive. having us eat I mean, a lot
3: more food, which weird. I'm down with, right? You know,
2: no. we all have grown up in the 80s and 90s, low fat. You know, I mean, I went through a phase where I was actually a D, you know, I told you D run rower at Cal, and I seriously subsisted on bagels and um, red vines because they were fat free. So no <laughs> <food subscription.
3: laughs> and, and
2: snack
0: through, wells. Like, Did you have snack yes.
2: wells in there too, Yes. <laughs> yes. Rice <laughs> cakes.
3: Diet cooking rice <laughs> cakes. <laughs> and, um,
2: Coke and, rice and so, you know, I look back, I actually look back on my own, you know, a college and professional athletic career. And I'm like, man, I could have been so much better yeah. if I had had like even some of the tools that I have today. But like we, I didn't been such a, we, didn't we didn't know. We didn't know. We yeah. didn't know. And, um, but what I will say is that, you know, in, in this world where all we've been told for the last 25 years is the only way to have the body composition you want and to feel good and to heal from injury is to restrict, 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 um, and to actually have, a diet out there that says actually this is expansive. We want you to eat more fruits and vegetables. We want you to keep an eye on it. It's objective. We know that eating you know micro, more micronutrients is good for you. Fiber, on a variety of levels. It fits in with any cultural way of eating. It fits in with any you know preference. Like Kelly said, if you're a vegan or a vegetarian or carnivore, you know carnivore people can just eat all their 800 grams and berries. You know, and just <laughs> to give people an idea, like you know if you eat a whole pound of cherries pound a pound of cherries that's like 275 calories 230 calories there's been a point in this whole crazy nutrition universe where like fruit became demonized and nobody ate fruit and you know people would like run for the hills if they were like shown a banana you know fruits not the problem like fruits and vegetables are not why we have a like a a bad and worsening overweight and obesity problem in this world. Like you know, talk about losing the forest through the trees as an industry. Like that is fruit and ve- fruits and vegetables are not the problem. Mm-hmm. The other thing we saw, like we said before, those we, we live in a community of people who you know, like one of the things they like to do socially is eat together. And a lot of these diets require people to be like super weird and not be able to eat with their communities. And and it's like, it's like, man, first of all, eating food is like one of the great joys of, of being a human. And one of the ways that we connect as people is around food. And the weirder people get around food, the more difficult it is for them to connect around food. You know, we have so many friends who say, oh, well, yeah, I tried intermittent fasting and it did kind of help me from a calorie control standpoint, but I couldn't actually eat dinner with my kids And turns out that's not a trade-off that most people want to make. Most people actually want to be able to enjoy a meal with their own kids Mm -hmm. and aren't going to choose to intermittent fast at the expense of being able to connect with their kids around the dinner table. So I I don't know. I think I've lost my way. I'll let Kelly talk about the protein piece but one last thing I will say is, um, you know, everybody's obsessed with talking about the blue zones, you know, where, where people live, live forever, yes. you know, yes. without trying that hard. And, you know, one of the common things in blue zones is those people eat protein and fruits and vegetables. That is a common thread amongst all the blue zones. No matter where they are. Yeah. Exactly. What, what, yeah. what exact fruits and vegetables they eat and what protein sources they get are varied based on their culture. But like they're doing
0: that. Go ahead. Cue you up on protein.
3: Well, yeah. So, well,
0: so yeah. So Kelly, I'm curious. So protein, you said 0.7 and one gram per pound of body weight per day. I imagine that's, you know, I, you said you're a bigger guy. I mean, it's gotta be at least 200 grams of protein a day.
3: It can be. And what we're always trying to do is say, you know, what does the data support? What does the research, what is Mm -hmm. practical as a human and what's your goal? Mm Mm-hmm. So if you're not very active today, 0.7 probably works pretty well and it's probably a reasonable amount. And it is a reasonable amount. We, the, the guidelines that we propose are well within sort of safety limits. If that's, you know, God forbid you eat too much steak one day and danger your life. The idea here is, though, that we know that if you're older, your protein signaling comes down, your ability to sort of utilize the protein. So you actually need a little more protein. And if you're turning over a lot of tissue, you definitely want to be towards that one gram. Or Or if you're you're a
2: menopausal woman.
3: Or growing young teenager, (laughs) Julia, you say with a little bit of what?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Like if you're a menopausal woman, like me.
3: One of the things that is important is that these principles. Again, you want to eat pea protein and and you're vegetarian and you eat tofu, fine. If you want to you know, do this with sashimi chicken breast, you can. That's disgusting, but you could. And the idea here is this gives us a benchmark for saying, do I have the building blocks on board to take care of my connective tissue and my brain and my small intestine? And then can I feed my musculature and my sort of metabolic needs? And what we haven't done is really shown people where we find where the best practices are. So if you're coming back from an injury, man, you get one gram or above one gram, and that's one of our benchmarks of something you can control. And again, what we're making sure is that your body has what it needs based on our all of the data and all of the research to do what it needs to do it turns out, though, that if you eat 800 grams of fruits and vegetables, and, and just so everyone knows, that's like four big apples. It's not a crazy amount. It's not unattainable. But we just saw that research that kids, over 50% of kids didn't eat a vegetable last week, and 35% of kids didn't eat a fruit last week. And when we actually ask people to look at their fruit and veggies intake, because basically no one says it's wrong, they don't really eat enough fruits and vegetables. So now we say, well, are your kids getting fruits and vegetables? Are your kids just getting brown food and carbohydrate, you know, highly palatable things? When we're trying to help adults shift body composition or lose weight, one of the easiest ways we know is to flood them with food. We're like, hit your protein, get your fruits and vegetables. And then if you need cake or a cookie on the other side of that, which you probably be less likely to reach for, you'll be shocked at how full you are. And at the end of the day, you're like, wow, I'm still buying. I'm going to have to eat more.
2: And I just want to add that we have two very different kids. Our older daughter Georgia will eat anything and loves food, including a diverse amount of fruits and vegetables. And then we have a younger daughter, our fourteen-year-old, would left her own devices exclusively eat brown food. Um, and <laughs> so like my daughter, you know, yeah. yeah. So you know, anyone who is a parent knows that it's an ongoing—I wouldn't even say battle—but conversation it's just something that we. Mm-hmm. It's an ongoing conversation in our household. And, you know, it's just something we always keep our finger on the pulse. We always offer her a variety of vegetables at dinner and make sure we're, you know, biasing fruit because she will eat a little more fruit than vegetables. And we're just making sure that wherever we can, we're trying to get those micronutrients into her body. And check
3: this out. For an example about constraint, she discovered she would eat mixed berries mixed with yogurt in a blender. And I was like, okay, so you only eat fruit, but if I blend this fruit up with some yogurt, you'll eat it in the yeah, morning. Yeah, like if
2: we served it to her in a bowl with nope. the berries whole, mm-hmm. she's like, doesn't like it. Right. But if we blend it up, she eats it. Yeah. yeah. And so
3: for, for me, I'm like, cool. And just yesterday, our oldest daughter has this like greens powder she really likes, you know, just some powdered greens. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, greens are fine, totally. If you feel like they add in something to your probiotic gut health and all the other things, and their their insurance fine. But Caroline's like, do you mind mixing these greens into my berry smoothie? And I was like, she's
2: like, they don't taste that.
3: Who are you? Like you're becoming (laughs) an adult. I'm so proud. That's a
1: good step. I hope my daughter hits that step at some point. Me too. She's twelve. Just turned twelve. So. We're not there yet with the greens. No, but sometimes
3: she, it's eat four blackberries, Caroline. Uh-huh. Like Caroline, you just need to. I'll sit here yes. while you eat four blackberries. She's Like four blackberries. Yeah. I'm like, who <laughs> doesn't so like fruit?
2: Good. I know. <laughs> like blackberries are like one of the most amazing things. So you know, it's it's a constant. It's a constant thing in our household. It's a conversation. Yeah. Nora, conversation is more, exactly Nora right, likes Dimity.
1: tomato soup, but she won't oh. ever touch a tomato. And I'm like, all it is is ground up tomatoes. And that's, no,
3: it is. It's, yeah. This is magic. Yeah. You want tomato soup every meal? Yeah. Fine. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Fine.
3: And I think, you know, one of the, the things about the whole book is creating these benchmarks allows us to say, wow, you know, we just had to travel for some work. I think there was a whole day where I did not eat a fruit or vegetable. You know what I mean? Or until the evening. Mm-hmm. I just, like, we just couldn't. We weren't, didn't have access to it. So I don't panic. I just say, well, tomorrow I'm going to do better. And I think what it's difficult as people, because this is the way our brains are worked, we're not wired to think in terms of decades. And, you know, if I eat these vegetables today, it'll make a difference for me when I'm 60, 70 years old. That's not how it works. But the small practices that we engage in day to day aggregate over our lifetime to make more robust people. And, that's why it's important that we play to the best of our ability at these small games of our life, eating, nutrition, sunlight, sleep, all those things. And then we won't have to get to a point where the this, this space station is on fire and I'm trying to put myself on life support and put the fire out and wonder what happened. You know, the, We always, I think, want to say that the person I'm going to be tomorrow will have more willpower, They'll be the one who exercises and eats better and says no to the cake. That's not the case. And if we can start to constrain our lives and look at this 24-hour duty cycle, every one of us has a perfect day again and again and again to small make these small behaviors that totally make a difference in our life in the long run.
0: Love it. I love it. Well you guys are just a great uh first of all a great interview for sure, but also just super fun to talk to you. and um we could sit here for hours, I'm sure. <laughs> pretty much want to go through every habit, but we're not going to do that. <laughs> we will let you um get back to your work at your standing desks and all those things. But thank you so much, Calvi and Juliet, for joining us. It was really uh, great. Again, your book, your newest book is Built to Move. And anything else you want to promo while while we have No, you? I mean,
2: we're just, uh, they can, you know, folks listening can uh, learn more at com and follow us at The Ready State. I'm at Juliet Star Ed on Instagram. And It's so fun to meet both of you and have a chance to chat. I didn't even, before we go, where are you both? I I have to know this before we sign (laughs)
1: Okay. I'm in Maryland, not too far outside of D.C. And I live in Denver now.
2: Oh, okay. Okay. Go Colorado. Go Colorado. Um, All right. Well, thank you guys. We really, really appreciate you having us on. It was really fun to chat with you.
0: Good luck. All right. I got to go have some lunch with my 800 grams. I know. I'm going to go eat some Go eat some vegetables. (laughs) I like all my fruit, so... Cool. Thank you all. Take care you guys.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. Have a good week. You too. Bye.
0: If you're contemplating a half marathon this fall, I'm just going to put this out there. Definitely consider the heart and soul half marathon level one program. It's our most reviewed and popular half marathon plan. Laura, who just finished her race. Here's what she had to say about it. She said, I learned a lot of good habits, including to warm up, And my form really improved thanks to runs that concentrated solely on different elements of form. I feel extremely fit coming off the 20-week training cycle, and I'm excited to continue building my cardiovascular base. I have been recommending this training program to anybody who will listen. And you're listening, so if you've got a half marathon on your mind, head down to the show notes and check out the link in our training programs.